legislature spending scandal. I don't have any comment at all. The trial of former clerk Craig James begins. How a log splitter became a symbol of suspected fraud. Attack at Tim Hortons. We are concerned about the public safety. More seemingly random violence in downtown Vancouver. And a slap shot to sexism. For me, Vancouver was a no-brainer. The woman who just broke a major barrier to join the Vancouver Canucks. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The trial that was first set in motion by a shocking announcement more than three years ago has begun in a Vancouver courtroom. Former B.C. legislature clerk Craig James is facing charges of fraud and breach of trust in a case that involved a wood splitter and other surprising purchases. Grace Key reports. In the prosecutor's opening remarks, former B.C. legislature clerk Craig James was described as a senior staff member who misused public funds for personal benefit. Today was the first day. Any comments? Uh, no, I don't have any comment at all. That was James as he left court this afternoon in Vancouver. James entered not guilty pleas today on three counts of breach of trust and two counts of fraud over $5,000. The allegations deal with $258,000 in retirement payout benefits, a wood splitter and trailer, travel expenses, and other items including a decorative pillow with a Union Jack, cufflinks, and books on beekeeping and whiskey. We're hearing how the wood splitter and trailer were part of purchases made in case of a natural disaster or catastrophic event. They were kept at the James residence. The prosecutor saying it would have been utterly useless in the case of an emergency. After picking up the wood, James wrote in an email, picked up the wood splitter, may try it tomorrow, you will love it. An investigation led to his eventual resignation in 2019. The trial is expected to last five to six weeks with 27 witnesses, and he will be tried by judge alone. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. There's been another terrifying stranger attack in downtown Vancouver, this time inside a Tim Hortons on Hastings near Seymour. It happened Saturday morning, and the surveillance video of the vicious assault is so disturbing, we've blurred portions of it. Catherine Urquhart has the story. Tim Hortons Harbor Centre is a popular downtown coffee shop. And on Saturday morning, it was the scene of a violent assault. It has uh, all the hallmarks of uh, another uh, random and unprovoked uh, stranger assault in the downtown core. We are concerned about the public safety. Surveillance cameras inside Tim Hortons captured the attack. At about 6 a.m., the suspect can be seen making an order, then sitting for 20 minutes. When the victim walks in, it appears there may be an exchange between them. Moments later, the suspect walks up to the victim, stabs him several times, then flees taking nothing. Why do you think that it was unprovoked and that it was a stranger attack? There's no indication in this case that there was any prior relationship or any significant um, uh, interaction between the victim and the suspect before this occurred. The 25-year-old victim was treated in hospital for numerous stab wounds and should survive. Police say he's from Mexico, in Canada since October on a tourist visa. The incident comes after a woman was assaulted outside the Hotel Georgia New Year's Eve. Vancouver police say more than four people a day are victims of 
unprovoked assaults. I do think that uh, Vancouver is safe. It's one of the safest cities in the world. However, we can always do more. This is a continuing uh, uh, problem. It's an it's a continuing concern uh, for the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, we recognize that it's created significant um, angst in the community. In the latest attack, the suspect is described as being in his twenties, six foot two, with short black hair and a slim build. Anyone with information about the man or the stabbing is asked to contact the VPD's major crime section. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Metro Vancouver Transit Police are looking for witnesses after an assault over the weekend at the Broadway City Hall Canada Line station. Around noon on Saturday, a man was seen throwing garbage at a woman who was waiting for the train. Another man tried to intervene. At that time, officers say he was told to mind his own business, which seemed to escalate the situation further. The man and the female both got onto the SkyTrain and the suspect uh, followed closely behind them. As the suspect tried to uh, enter the train, uh, the man then blocked his path and that's when the suspect allegedly uh, shoved the man to the side which caused him to fall onto the uh, ground of the SkyTrain. Now once everybody was on the train, uh, it appears that the situation did de-escalate and uh, there were no further reports of um, anything further. Police were able to intercept at the Bridgeport station, but the suspect was no longer there. Officers are also hoping to speak to the female victim. Burnaby RCMP have seized a gun and a stash of drugs and cash following an arrest at Metro Town Mall earlier this month. Mounties responded to reports of a man with a weapon at Metrotown on New Year's Day. Officers arrested the man and in the process, police also seized a firearm, a loaded magazine, $1,600 in cash and bags of suspected cocaine, fentanyl, meth and heroin. The man also had two outstanding warrants in the Lower Mainland. Now to COVID-19 in B.C., and we have three days of numbers to share with you. There are 987 people in hospital. 129 of those patients are receiving critical care. 24 people have died over the past 72 hours of COVID-19 complications. Active cases are lower than last week at just under 32,000, and about 5,000 of those cases are new. Keith Baldry is live with more on the numbers. And Keith, are we seeing evidence yet that things are starting to stabilize? Slowly, I think we are seeing just a tiny bit of evidence. And they're stabilizing. And the decline what we're seeing in hospitalizations should begin this week. But the number of people going to hospital still remains very high. So here's our current situation. A seven-day rolling average of hospitalizations. About 120 people a day go into hospital. But keep in mind, and considered stable, but a number of people come out. So the, the uh, net increase is not that large. ICU cases are stable. The first time in a week, they've actually gone down in number. And the number of people on ventilators or artificial breathing devices has declined for the first time in a week as well. And our active cases are the lowest in number since January 6th. So I don't read too much into the active cases being down because we're not testing it anywhere near the number of people we were a month ago. The ICU numbers are encouraging though. We were going up about five a day last week when they really started to skyrocket. Now that seems to have tempered off and the number of people requiring artificial breathing devices has declined. So that is encouraging. This week we should start to see a slowdown in 
hospitalizations. It's not happening yet. And one final note on ICUs. Three people in there are kids under the age of 19. None of them vaccinated. Uh, we saw three people in, in that age group in ICU last week as well. They seem to come out of ICU. Now three more are in there unvaccinated. That's always a, a, a sign of concern. Troubling indicator for sure. Okay, thanks very much, Keith. All right. As if you return to in-person classes today to the objection of some students who say the school isn't doing enough to keep them safe on campus. As Krista Dow reports, dozens took part in a walkout this morning to send a strong message to administrators. A show of solidarity at Simon Fraser University. Students by the dozens marched from the classroom to the administration building to protest the return of in-person learning. At this point, it's really clear that being in person isn't safe for everyone. The walkout comes against the backdrop of Omicron and a fifth wave as anxiety at the university reaches a breaking point for both students and staff. I don't feel safe learning in person. I was in a lecture hall this morning with about 200 people and it didn't feel like a safe place. Knowing that there are folks who are in positions of power making decisions like this, probably a lot of them still at home while we're here on campus is infuriating. They're calling for an extension on remote learning, free N95 masks and rapid testing. One student who's too afraid to give her name for fear of reprisal says there needs to be more safeguards in place. Why weren't we consulted? Why weren't we asked how we wanted the school to be run? So that is why we are here, so students can have that voice. The group joins thousands more in an online petition calling for similar measures. In constantly being exposed to the virus. In response, SFU says the majority of in-person classroom and learning settings are not considered close contact environments for the transmission of COVID-19 based on the layers of protection that are in place. Adding since the fall, there have been no transmission of COVID on campus. Students at UVic and Kwantlen Polytechnic have also returned to class Monday. UBC students will instead be returning early February. Krista Dow, Global News. Emily Castongay just did something no woman has ever done. She cracked the starting lineup in the Vancouver Canucks front office, becoming the team's first ever assistant GM. Why she says it's a no-brainer in just over a minute. Waves of junk washing up on Vancouver Island beaches. Why lost cargo containers are still causing problems off the coast. Coming up on the News Hour. And a surprise visitor recorded on a doorbell camera in Fort St. John. That's coming up later. Right now, though, the Vancouver Canucks have hired their first ever female assistant general manager in the NHL team's history. Squire Barnes joins us now with more on the move and what we're learning about Emily Castongay. She certainly seems impressive. Well, and she's someone a lot of hockey fans might not know much about. But a lot of people in the NHL knew about her. In fact, when the Montreal Canadiens general manager job was up recently, her name floated around for that job as well. Emily Castingay has been around hockey a long time. She was a hockey player in NCAA in Niagara University in New York. Uh, she also was a player agent. In fact, she is a player agent, or at least was now, for Alexei Lafreniere, who was the top pick in the 2020 draft. She was the player agent for Antoine Roussel, when he signed with the Canucks. She got Roussel $3 million a year out of Jim Benning. That is impressive. And um, she also was the agent for Marie uh, Philippe Poulin of the uh, Canadian national team. He's one of the best players on that team. So 
Jim Rutherford reached out to her. And a lot of teams, as I said, know about her, and they've been thinking about hiring. The Canucks got to her first. And she said that through her entire life in hockey, she has never felt like an outsider. Everybody has treated her with respect. So I've always just been really well treated, whether it's with conversations with NHL GMs or assistant GMs or, you know, uh, scouting staffs or, you know, development people. Like I've just, I've always just been well accepted. I think once you, you get past that and you just start talking about hockey and, and they realize that you have the knowledge, um, you know, I think knowledge is power and they just, you know, you kind of forget that you're the only girl in the room sometimes. Um, you know, it's important for women that want to be in the sport to know that, that, you know, sometimes you get intimidated, but you, you shouldn't, if you have the knowledge and you, and you've done the work, um, there's a place for you here. And um, if it needs to start with me, then, then good. But, um, you know, for me, it's just always been my experience. And Jim Rutherford is going to give her a lot of responsibility. She'll be the one dealing with player contracts. She was on the other side of that as an agent. Now she'll be on the management side of that. And there's a salary cap uh, situation with the Canucks she's going to have to deal with as well. But everybody around the NHL, everybody who knows Emily, says the Canucks picked a winner today. Good for her, and uh, we're very, all very pleased to see her join the organization. Thanks very much, Squire. Up next, all masks are not created equal. Would you have fought this? No. What to look for that proves you have the best protection? And later, future-proofing. What YVR is doing to prepare for the next great disruption to air travel. During the pandemic, all people age five and older have to wear a mask in indoor public spaces. And now that Omicron is so highly contagious, many people are seeking out higher quality masks. But there are many masks to choose from with varying degrees of effectiveness. Let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Andrea for more on how to spot a fake. And Thanks, Sophie. The BC Centre for Disease Control says all types of masks help reduce transmission of COVID-19 if they are fitted and worn correctly. But when it comes to higher quality masks, how do you know the mask you purchase is the real deal? Well, we bought some masks and went to find out how to spot the red flags. Face masks have become a part of our daily lives. And with the highly transmissible Omicron variant, many Canadians are looking to upgrade their mask. But how can you trust what you're wearing is the real deal? Would you have bought this? No. Dr. Don Sin is a respirologist at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. We sat down with him and reviewed the N95 mask, said to be the most effective, filtering out 95% of airborne particles, the KN95 mask, and the comparable KF94. When purchasing an N95, Dr. Sin says, make sure it has a NIOSH-approved stamp on the mask itself. It says NIOSH, N-I-O-S-H. That's the agency, U.S. agency, that has tested this mask. Most of the KN95 masks are manufactured in China, while the KF94s are made in Korea, both intended to filtrate out 95% and 94% of the particles in the atmosphere. But finding an authentic one can be tough. They do not have any lettering inside, so it's hard to know whether they're truly authentic at the very least, make sure the KN95 mask or the KF94 has a manufacturer's name and serial number on the package. That doesn't necessarily guarantee the authenticity of the mask, but the absence of those details are red flags. 
Now, unfortunately, about one in two of these masks don't meet the 94% or 95% standard. Counterfeit masks continue to be a problem, especially for the N95. Since mid-February 2021, Health Canada has seized close to 330,000 counterfeit 3M-branded N95 respirators from Canadian distributors and detained nearly 365,000 at the U.S. border. So I was taking a gamble by buying this. Yes. Consumer Matters wanted to know if the KN95 masks we recently purchased at two major retailers and at a discount store were fake. Turns out there was no guarantee that the masks provided a 95% filtration rate. The KN95 masks and KF94 masks are tested in their respective countries of origin, so in, um, uh, by Chinese regulatory agency and Korean. And um, they do not have the same stringent uh, requirements that uh, the U.S. or Canadian uh, regulatory agencies have. Which means, as a consumer, given the uncertainty around many of the masks out there, you have to take precautions. So again, if you don't know if your KN95, for example, is authentic, Dr. Sin says to still use the mask, but also use other strategies like safe distancing to reduce the spread of the virus. Also... There are good quality masks out there, some made right here in Canada. Dr. Sin recommends people check out masksforcanada.org, which has a list of reputable vendors which are Health Canada authorized. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, helpful information. Thank you, Anne. The Vancouver International Airport wants to make some big changes to its property, transforming it into a major trade and transportation hub. As Ted Chernecki reports, YVR says the changes are necessary to help it survive the devastating effects of, pe- of the pandemic. Despite the likes of BCIT's Aviation Maintenance School already on Sea Island, and the likes of a massive Canada Post sorting center that moved from downtown to the north side of Sea Island, or the UPS and Amazon loading bays also on the north side, there is in fact still a lot of land here that is undeveloped. And YVR sees the need for that to change. So as we look at our lands in partnership with the Musqueam Nation on whose territory YVR sits, we look for opportunities to really use the 400 acres of undeveloped land to complement our growth, particularly in the logistics and cargo space. The Lower Mainland has one of the lowest industrial land vacancy rates in North America. But on Sea Island, there's 400 acres of unused land, mainly on the north side. And another 400 acres that's underutilized on the south side, where land had been set aside for a future third runway that's no longer needed. We don't see the need for a third runway uh, any time in the foreseeable future. And by foreseeable future, we we mean the next 40 to 50 years. You know, we see aircraft using runways differently, and we see also opportunities for multimodal transport. Metro Vancouver is revising its industrial land usage forecast for 2050, and Sea Island stands out. Uh, For Sea Island particularly, which is mostly YVR, of course, uh, we have that shown as purple, which is a favorite color on the map there, and that denotes industrial lands, be it heavy or light or urban or building intensive or land intensive, depending on the case. So there's different opportunities there. The 2021 YVR traffic numbers are dismal. 7.1 million passengers passed through this airport, still down 72% from before the pandemic. But cargo traffic is faring better, down 17% from 2019. 
But 90% of YVR's revenue came from passenger fees, and debt is piling up. So it must future-proof the airport with new revenue streams, and the pandemic may have given the plans a new urgency. How this is very much a catalyst that is, I think, speeding up initiatives that they thought would be 10 or 15 or even 20 years away now that I think that there's an urgency within that need for a much more diversified stream. That designer outlet mall has been quite the success for YVR, to the point it led to some traffic issues around the holiday season. Whoever builds here in the coming years will have a lot to contend with. First Nations, climate change, and traffic to name some. And it's Ottawa who has the final say. Ted Chernaki, Global News. Coming up, new developments in the Manitoba border tragedy. What the suspect in a human smuggling operation said today in court. And the search for a missing dad and daughter from Vancouver Island. That's next. Still some leftover delays eastbound on Highway 1 in Burnaby after clearing a crash near Sprott. As traffic recovers, expect minor congestion at merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Children cannot learn when they are hungry. Food insecurity also affects their mental health. That's why Global News and the Grocery Foundation are partnering for Toonies for Tummies and nourishing children in countless communities. Donate today to Toonies for Tummies in-store or online. Counterflow is out over at the Massey Tunnel, two lanes north and two lanes south. Minor delays just at the Steveston on and off ramps. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. RCMP on Vancouver Island are asking for some help locating a father and his daughter after the girl was not returned home to her mother. North Cowich and RCMP say Jesse Bennett and seven-year-old Violet Bennett were reported missing from their home in the North Cowich and Duncan area Sunday. Three days earlier, Victoria Family Law Court sent out a joint custody agreement ordering Jesse to return Violet to her mother that same day. The RCMP believe Jesse is evading police and breaching the court order. Jesse is 36 years old, 5 foot 10, 160 pounds, with blue eyes and brown hair and a beard. Violet is 7 years old, 4 feet tall, 50 to 60 pounds, with blue eyes and what's being described as big, natural, curly hair. Anyone with information on their whereabouts is asked to call North Cowichan RCMP. Manitoba RCMP are continuing their investigation into the deaths of four people along the U.S. border. Today, saying they are working closely with Indian consular officials to identify the victims. Global's Marnie Blunt has more on the court appearance of the man arrested in the case and why he was released. It was an illegal operation with a tragic ending. The man accused of human smuggling in connection to this case was detained here in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And on Monday, Steve Shand appeared by video link in a Minneapolis courtroom where he was granted a pre-trial supervised release with numerous conditions. Shand is charged with one count of transporting or attempting to transport illegal aliens. Last week, the Florida man was apprehended near the border in Kitson County, Minnesota. Border officers pulled over the 47-year-old who was driving a van down a dirt road with two other undocumented Indian nationals inside. Officers encountered another five people walking down a road in blizzard-like conditions. 
Later on, four others, including an infant and a teenager, were found frozen to death on the Canadian side of the border. Court documents show that Shand, who was originally from Jamaica, was a cab driver with financial issues. 2018 documents show he filed for bankruptcy more than three years ago. It's also believed that this incident may be part of a larger human smuggling operation. Shand didn't show much emotion during today's proceedings and waived his right to a probable cause hearing. Now he's under numerous conditions, including surrendering his passport and all travel documents. And he can only stay in his home district in Florida and can only travel to Minnesota for legal proceedings. Marty Blunt, Global News. An impaired driver on Vancouver Island is lucky to be alive after crashing into a power pole. Saanich police say the truck slammed into a utility pole Sunday afternoon in the 1000 block of Burnside Road. The pole, as you can see, toppled onto the vehicle and the power lines were active, leaving the driver trapped in a dangerous situation. Firefighters pulled that person to safety nearly two hours later. Fortunately, the driver suffered no serious injuries, but did fail a roadside breath test, resulting in a 90-day driving suspension. There is growing concern that a military buildup along the Russia-Ukraine border is reaching a point of no return. And while financial aid has flowed into Ukraine, including from Canada, it's unclear just what lies ahead for a country in the line of fire. Global's Reggie Cicchini has more. In the open waters of the Baltic Sea and on the ground in Belarus, Russia is flexing its military muscle, ratcheting up fears over a Ukrainian invasion. We are hoping for the best, but we have to be prepared, prepared for the worst. With Europe's eastern border in a fragile state, NATO is readying military assets for a collective defense. And the U.S. is now considering moving troops into the region. As of now, the decision has been made to put these units on higher alert and higher alert only. No final decision has been made to deploy them. It's a volatile game of wait and see, and whether Putin will further engage in diplomacy, something experts say would be smoke and mirrors to make him appear to be a statesman looking to steer away from war. He sees a lot of domestic political gain uh, to be had from, from playing that role, including to deny the United States that role. Russia says it has no intentions to invade, but its unpredictable nature has left Ukraine's democracy on the line and an outpouring of assistance from around the world. We will continue uh, to work closely with the government of Ukraine to uh, ensure they get the support they need. Moscow sees an influx of global aid as a provocation, especially from NATO, which Russia views as an impediment to a return to its Soviet empire. Putin should know that the price to, to use provocations and use military forces, uh, forces to change border in Europe would be very, very high. We've always said we would reinforce our allies on the eastern flank. With potentially devastating sanctions in the winds, President Biden held a security-related call with European leaders on Monday, all while it recalls its embassy staff from Kyiv, something Ottawa has yet to announce. There are many contingency plans uh, in place. And with so much at stake, Russian and Ukrainian officials will meet this week in Paris on a path forward that's mostly uncharted. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. In health matters tonight, new polling suggests there's a deep divide in our country when it comes to people who choose not to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Ipsos polling finds more than half, 52% of Canadians, are in support of a tax on the unvaccinated. And while a significant portion don't share that view, fully two-thirds of Canadians want further restrictions on unvaccinated people. 
Half of the Canadians polled blame unvaccinated people for the pandemic stretching on. And while almost three quarters of Canadians would welcome a vaccinated person into their homes, no questions asked, just 36% would do the same for an unvaccinated person. I think a critical point is to understand that this level of pressure on the unvaccinated is temporary. As we emerge from the pandemic gradually, as our healthcare system goes back to functioning normally, we should reduce the pressure on those who made the unfortunate choice not to vaccinate. Uh, we shouldn't continue to target this population in this way because it's extremely polarizing and it really marginal marginalizes an entire population. Just ahead, a stroke of genius. The British golfer who just can't seem to stop hitting holes in one. And the coastal disaster that just keeps on giving with cleanup costs rising by the day. Children cannot learn when they are hungry. Food insecurity also affects their mental health. That's why Global News and the Grocery Foundation are partnering for Toonies for Tummies and nourishing children in countless communities. Donate today to Toonies for Tummies in-store or online. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Another milestone in BC's flood recovery. Highway 1 through the Fraser Canyon has reopened to all vehicle traffic. Repairs to the stretch are now complete despite the record snowfall, avalanche risk and cold temperatures over the last few weeks. But drivers are being warned the route is not what it used to be. Motorists are being asked to prepare for delays of two hours or more as construction is continuing in some areas and others are only open to single lane alternating traffic. Highway 1 through the Fraser Canyon was closed November 14th when heavy rainfall caused flooding and damaged 18 sites along the route. Planning for long-term repairs to the route is underway. Environmental groups say they are frustrated as debris continues to wash up almost three months after more than a hundred shipping containers fell into the ocean off Vancouver Island. Kylie Stanton reports some organizations say they're being kept in the dark as they repeatedly ask for a plan to help take out the trash. It's been nearly three months since 109 shipping containers went overboard in high seas. And so far, only four have washed up along the north coast of Vancouver Island. We were absolutely devastated to hear that it had to happen right where we just cleaned. Ashley Tapp and her team at Epic Exio have been cleaning ever since. The debris just keeps coming. Everything from blow-up unicorns, coolers and baby oil containers to cologne bottles, urinal mats and Paw Patrol helmets. The funny thing is you can find the pink unicorn at Raft Cove and Palmerston, but then you're finding the little pumps down at Grant Bay that go with them. In fact, organizations responsible for the shoreline cleanups are reporting debris clearly associated with the MV Zim Kingston containers from as far north as Haida Gwaii all the way down to Victoria sparking concerns about the ship owner being held accountable long-term. Specifically with marine debris, it's incredibly difficult to run with the response that 
is is the norm right now, which is, you know, once the beach is clean, then the company's done its job because it's just not true. According to the Canadian Coast Guard, as of early December, more than 47,000 kilograms of debris have been removed from the coastline. But without the ship's manifest being publicly available, those on the ground say it's virtually impossible to prove the origin of the fines and the extent of the spread. How do we know what's being accounted for? How do we know what's being paid for in terms of cleanup? And, and how do we know um, if this company is really taking its responsibility seriously for stewarding the coastline that it profits from? While plans are in place to do a sonar scan of the area to try and locate the missing 105 containers, the organization say there is no plan for what's happening on the shoreline. And until something is put in place, there's fear coastal communities will be on the hook for what they're calling an environmental disaster. We understand that accidents happen. It's how we react to it that can help us in the future. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Yikes, hope they get that cleaned up. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon with a look at that weather forecast. And it looks like we're going to be socked in for a little bit, Christy. Yes, this big upper level ridge really taking a toll, creating that inversion. So for those of us that have been stuck underneath the fog, temperatures have only warmed up to three or four degrees, but it's much nicer up above. Here's a look at some drone footage from our cameraman, Pat Bell. This is from North Shore, and you can see as this drone climbs up and out of that fog, boy, it is gorgeous out there. Bluebird day across the mountains, warmed up to nine degrees, for example, on Grouse Mountain today. Here's another look at a shot from the Cypress Mountain lookout from Alec Bester. Another great shot. You can see Burnaby Mountain, the tip of it just poking out there and actually a bit of a plume of cloud of um, cloud cover popping out and that's from the refinery. So we still do have a fog advisory. You can likely expect it for a couple of days. The concern is, is that we'll see near zero visibility when we're driving. Don't forget the fog can be thick in some areas versus others. So you may run into a very thick area. So make sure you're slowing down on the roads. Meanwhile, in the interior, also fog in the valley. So it's what you call valley fog. And in the interior, temperatures at night have been plummeting below zero. That means freezing fog. So what you get in freezing fog is something called rime ice. Basically, the water droplets in the fog become super cooled. They drop down below freezing, but they don't condense or they don't create that ice until they hit a surface. And that's what it created. It's this beautiful sort of um, needle-like ice that's created from uh, that freezing fog creating rice, uh, rime ice. Great shot. Thanks for everyone who shared the photos with us. So expect valley fog and through the interior again. Hopefully you'll break out of it in the afternoon. Some places did today, as did some places across the south coast, but very few. It was like areas like in the uh, Agassiz, for example. So a range in temperature, likely three or four degrees if you're within that fog. But if you do break out of it, you may warm up to highs of about six degrees, but we'll likely see this pattern right through until the weekend. Tonight's Central Windows weather window comes to you from Terrace, where they had a burning fire sunset. They definitely won the sunset uh, prize today. <laughs> they sure did. That is quite a sky. Thank you, Christy. Thanks, Christy. A meteorite streaking across the sky was captured by a doorbell camera in Fort St. John. Yeah, check out this uh, video that was recorded by Arlene Schmelich's doorbell cam. She says she was sitting on her sofa around 7.30 in the evening when she saw a flash of light through the windows. Her daughter told her a meteorite had gone over, so she checked the doorbell camera and was surprised to see what it had captured. 
doorbell camera. Like 20 years ago, who, who would have known <laughs> such a thing existed? 10 years ago, really? 10 years ago, you're right. All right, Squire. I don't even have a doorbell, never mind a doorbell cam. <laughs> That's Seriously. not a surprise knowing you. <laughs> Squire is here, I don't know if that's an insult or what that it was. Uh, okay, so we, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, Emily Castingay, and we'll talk more about her uh, coming up, the new Canucks assistant general manager. But another big happening today locally, Michael Riley, quarterback of the BC Lions, has retired from the CFL. More on that coming up in sports for sure. And... The hottest golfer in the world. He's no pro. You've never heard of him, but lately he's sure been playing like one. Here's Squire. Sad to see Riley go. He might be a firefighter in the future. He's been cool. training to become a firefighter. In uh, 2019, when Michael Riley was brought back to the BC Lions, there was a lot of fanfare. Everybody was excited. Things were looking up for the franchise. He was going to be the quarterback who led BC back to the glory days. But nothing seemed to go right for him or the franchise. And after three seasons, one of which, which was lost to COVID, Riley decided that it was time to leave the BC Lions and leave the game of football altogether. Second and goal. This is the final touchdown pass thrown by Michael Riley. 11 CFL seasons, 34,805 yards, and 182 touchdowns later, Riley's officially called it a career as a CFL quarterback. A decision which didn't really come as a big surprise to the BC Lions. When you play 11 years of professional football, it takes a toll on your body. It takes a toll on your mind. And COVID and everything else that, that's gone on and uh, Michael's life, I think, um, I think it was time for him. And, uh, you know, after speaking with him over the last month, um, I, I just think he was ready. Riley finishes his career as a four-time CFL passing leader, a Most Outstanding Player of the Year award winner, and a two-time Grey Cup champion. His starting quarterback shoes are big ones to fill, and the job officially belongs to Nathan Rourke. And it's what Rourke learned apprenticing under Riley, which is perhaps Michael Riley's own little retirement gift to the Lions. Michael uh, really took Nathan under his wing and really um, sped up his progress to be a professional, and you can really tell. And Nathan, to his credit, uh, you know, he, he studies like he's going to be the starting quarterback each week. And that's one of the things that we like about Nathan, uh, that he you know, wants to be a starter, has the ability to be a starter. And you know what? His biggest fan is Michael Riley. And I think one of the decisions that, uh, you know, one of the conversations that we had with Michael throughout the last month is that the fact that Nathan was here and he was happy that um, if he did retire, that we had the next guy to come in and be a professional and to uh, lead the BC Lions on the field. The hiring of former players agent Emily Castingay by the Vancouver Canucks today was not only a coup. There were a lot of teams around the NHL who had discussed her, thought about getting her in their front office, but it was Jim Rutherford and the Canucks who made the move first, and it was a good move. You'll see. This move also seemed like fate. Emily lost her older sister, to a sudden and tragic death over 10 years ago. The last conversation they had, 
her sister predicted that Emily would be in NHL management one day and even said it would be with the Vancouver Canucks. And that led Emily to always plan to one day bring her hockey career to Vancouver. A vision board at home that I've had um, for over five, six years. And um, on it, I had written um, a certain age and then I had written Vancouver beside it, um, you know, just because I wanted to be in Vancouver at that point in my life. Um, And I didn't know how I was going to get there or how it was going to happen. But uh, I turned that age in in about a month and a half. So uh, (laughs) it's always been kind of in the back of my mind and on my vision board. And, you know, whether it was as an agent or, you know, as working for the NHL, I didn't know how I was going to be there. But it's pretty awesome that it worked out that way. And as we said earlier in the show, one of her big jobs will be dealing with the salary cap and signing players to new contracts. Now, it looks good right now. That Thatcher, Demko, and JT Miller will be back with the Canucks tomorrow night against Edmonton. They have both been in COVID protocol. We'll know for sure tomorrow if they can play. No offense to Spencer Martin or Mikey DiPietro, but I think the Canucks would much rather see Demko in the net against Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, obviously. Uh, tonight in Philadelphia, or Philadelphia, I should say, is Keith Yandel tied the NHL's Ironman record, playing his 964th consecutive game, which equals the mark set by Doug Jarvis. He held the record, I think, for 12,813 days. He works for the Canucks now. Tomorrow night, Yandel needs just one shift against the Islanders, and he will be the new Ironman of the NHL, no longer tied with Jarvis. Jarvis never missed a regular season game. He had this to say about the record he held for such a long time. My hat's just off to, uh, you know, to Keith. This the game, the the way the speed of the game has picked up, the size of the players, uh, you know, to be able to to put a streak together like he has put together in today's era, it's uh, my hat's off to him. For me, it was just, you know, enjoyed playing the game, loved to play the game, wanted to be uh, in the lineup. Uh, and, you know, the streak itself to, uh, you know, I really don't think it's, it's the kind of streak that you can, you know, you can set out to achieve. I... For me, I just felt it was the grace of God that allowed me to play injury-free through my career so that afterwards I I feel I'm, you know, I've got the physical capabilities to do other things that I enjoy. Both Felix Auger-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov are in the quarterfinals at the Australian Open. Felix has to play Daniel Medvedev, who is now the top seed because of Novak Djokovic not being allowed in Australia. Shapo has to play the legend. Rafael Nadal, and that match will start soon. Nadal has beaten Shapovalov in three of four meetings, but he says the 2022 version of Shapovalov is the best one yet. As everybody knows, he's, he's one of the players with the biggest uh, potential on, on the tour. Uh, I mean, when I played against him uh, after the match, I said he's going to be a potential multi uh, Grand Slam winner, uh, and I still thinks that uh, if uh, if he is able to keep improving, he will be a, a multi Grand Slam winner. He's been great so far, but Nadal is never an easy out. One of the greatest lines I ever heard about Rafael Nadal. I said it before. He plays like he really needs the money. <laughs> I always love that line. He's very entertaining. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and high praise from him for mm-hmm. Chapeau, too. That's great. Thanks, Squire. Up next, the British golfer who's the talk of the clubhouse and why he's on the hook for a pretty big bar tab.
A hole-in-one is a feat so rare, so special, it's considered the holy grail of golf. That's right, but for one amateur golfer in the UK, the once-in-a-lifetime experience, as it is for most people, has turned into much more than that. He's at 11 and counting, and that's just since September. Mike Trollet reports. Neil Watts doesn't exactly turn heads on the golf course. His swing is, well, more like a slap shot. Yet this 40-year-old Brit is the talk of the golf world for his sudden knack at hitting holes in one. He hit his first six months ago. He's now up to 11, including this one while shooting an interview with a local news station. Yeah. Hold it up. Hold it up. That's great. The odds are long to do it once. 12,500 to one. Every other week from there, I, I started getting a hole in one and it was just getting to the stage where it was like, oh, God, like, what's going on? The other golfers at the course didn't care for an explanation. Golfing tradition dictates that any golfer who hits an ace buys drinks at the bar afterwards. The first two cost me quite a bit of money, but afterwards I managed to quickly get in the car and go home straight after, so it uh, didn't cost me too much then afterwards. In truth, there are a few sports as frustrating as golf, a four-letter word if there ever was one. Speaking of four, remember that four-year-old who hit an ace? Get in the hole. Go in the hole. What? He'll be talking about it the rest of his life. As will this guy. It's in! Oh my God! Are you kidding me? Who knew almost immediately there was one way to go after hitting the golfing summit. I'm never hitting again. I'm just quitting. Most golfers dream of hitting one. Watts, for all his success, is now aiming for 20. Microlight Global News, Toronto. Squires had one, but it lacked the drama, Squire. None of us saw it go in because the pin was in the back corner of the green in the shadow, so it just rolled up there. Oh, it's a good shot, and then it was in the hole. But then I ruined it by taking a seven on the very next hole. <laughs> it <laughs> all evens out, doesn't it? it does. that, that's golf in a nutshell right there. And that's our show. Thanks for watching, everyone. Good night. Good night, all.